You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Joining us today to discuss his views on innovations in continuing medical education around the world is Professor of Medicine and Faculty Dean for Continuing Medical Education at Harvard Medical School and Senior Consultant in Hepatology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Sanjeev, welcome. Thanks for coming to the studio today. Pleasure to be here, Dr. Samuels. Sanjeev, we've known each other for quite a long time. I think it goes back to our days at the uh, VA back in the 1970s, and I think of you first and foremost as a great internist, hepatologist. So before I get to talk to you about some of the issues about education, I want to uh, get a curbside consult from you. Can I do that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm interested in what your view is on the current status of the hepatitis C story. This was something that sort of came along during our time in medicine, came along concomitant with the HIV story, and it's taken a different turn. Can you sort of bring our listeners up to date on that story? Sure. It's really a remarkable story. We used to know of two viruses that caused hepatitis, hepatitis A and B, and based on epidemiological grounds and clinical studies, we were convinced there was a third virus. We couldn't identify it, so we used the term non-A, non-B. It wasn't A and it wasn't B. And it's really a remarkable story of progress in the field because in the world, there are currently 200 million people afflicted with chronic hepatitis C virus infection. Mostly from bloodborne or sexual transmission? A lot of them in the 70s and 80s were from blood transfusions or blood products, and hence the hemophiliacs who got clotting concentrates that were pooled not only got HIV but also got hepatitis C virus. Mm. And if somebody got a blood transfusion in the 60s, even in our country, in the United States, one in three came down with post-transfusion hepatitis. Really? Wow. And then in 1972, there was a landmark discovery by Dr. Bloomberg. He called it the Australia antigen. He discovered the hepatitis B surface antigen. A serendipitous discovery, Dr. Samuels, as they often are in medicine. And he got the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology for that landmark discovery. So now we could take every unit of donor blood and do a test and exclude hepatitis B. And then there were surrogate markers that were developed for non-A, non-B. And using those, so every single unit of donor blood was tested for that, we could exclude some of that blood that was likely to produce post-transfusion hepatitis. And we dropped from 1 in 3 in the 60s to 1 in 20, 5%. And then Michael Houghton, a PhD, working in a small corporation in California, cracked the code. And then in 1990 or thereabouts, we were able to test every single unit of donor blood for hepatitis C virus, look for the HCV RNA. And now the estimate is that the risk of post-transfusion hepatitis is less than one in two million. Hmm. So a remarkable story in, in terms of the discovery and the decreased risk of hepatitis C acquisition and transmission but also treatment. So 15 years ago, we were using interferon monotherapy, and 6% of patients had what we called a sustained virological response, which means that you stop the treatment, you test them six months later, and there's no trace of the virus in the blood. And now with combination PEG interferon and ribavirin treatment, we can actually cure about 40 to 60% of patients with chronic hepatitis C virus infection. Right, so this is like the only example of a chronic viral disease in human beings that can it be It actually cured. is. It's a radical term. Yeah. 
not every primary care physician or even gastroenterologist is aware of the fact that we in hepatology use this term so firmly. We actually discharge patients from our liver units if they've gone a year with a negative HCV RNA by PCR, a couple of times tested, and it's really actually an emotional scene yeah, because they've been saddled with this often for decades, and now we're telling them they're cured. Yeah. There's no so, trace in the blood, and if you look for hepatic HCV RNA, and you can't find it when you do a liver biopsy and look for it. One of the reasons I asked you this question first is I wanted to hear people hear the passion of you uh, talking about liver disease because, as you know, I was almost a liver doctor. That's also. true. You know, I spent a year with Professor yeah. Sheila Sherlock, almost turned into a liver doctor, and you're passionate about it. And yet, uh, some years ago, you transferred a significant component of your effort to running the continuing medical education program at Harvard. What made you do that? Why did you decide to give up the time uh, that you were spending on the passion? Yeah, I'm still spending a little bit of time in the clinical arena. I still see patients. I still round on the wards. I teach the medical students. I teach the GI and hepatology fellows and the house staff. But I've always had a passion for teaching, and I thought it was an, an amazing opportunity and an honor for me to accept the position of faculty dean for continuing medical education we reach out to 90,000 clinicians each year. We have clinicians from 150 countries coming to our postgraduate courses and now availing of our distance learning modules. This kind of education, though, is pretty expensive for most people, and I know you have some ideas about how to reach the rest of the world. A lot of people listening to us today on satellite radio, and it could be anywhere, how do you think we're going to get this educational information out to uh, people in China in India, uh, yeah, in the rest uh, of yeah, the world. absolutely. I think that's a great point. What happened actually to me was a coincidence. I happened to be sitting at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in an auditorium. Professor Larry Summers, then president at Harvard University, ah, is, yes, we've heard of him. <laughs> yes, is giving a grand rounds. Yeah, and during the Q and A period, he's asked something about technology and innovations, and he said, "In this current era of modern technology." we have an unprecedented opportunity, perhaps a moral obligation, to share information and knowledge with colleagues around the world. So I took, flipped out a three-by-five card, I wrote it down, I came back to my office, I thought about it, and that's when we launched the Distance Learning Initiative at Harvard Medical School. Yeah, so tell us a little bit briefly about what is this Distance uh, Learning Initiative? Right, so what we did first, first, we looked at the stats, and we saw that at that time about 60,000 people were coming to our postgraduate courses, and I asked uh, my colleagues in the department, how many of them are coming from abroad? And the answer was 4,000. Out of those 4,000, half of them were coming from Canada. So we said, we need to reach out to our clinicians, colleagues around the world who are really thirsting for great knowledge. And we have such a wonderful faculty, as you know, at Harvard Medical School in 17 affiliated hospitals, close to 12,000 faculty. So I created a template, and in fact, it was on chronic hepatitis C virus infection. It's case-based. It's very rich and interactive. So we ask a question. The attendees or subscribers at their computer answer it. If they get the wrong answer, there's a robust explanation as to why it's wrong. If they get the correct answer, we say it's correct, but we give a robust explanation and then say the other options were wrong for the following reasons. So it's very rich in teaching. The case then unfolds. More questions are asked. At the end of the day, at the end of doing the module, they've actually mastered the content. 
And this is done online. This right? is done online. But these people are not there live. They're back in their home, wherever they that are, is all correct. over the world. That is so correct. So who pays for it? So what we've done is we've actually made it available for a very affordable and nominal fee. So it's roughly 10 or $20 to partake in one of our online modules. And then last year, I looked with my group at the number of people who had subscribed to now our 50 modules. We have another 40 in preparation. And the tally came to about 20,000 from 140 countries. But when I said, tell me about Africa, they said, you know, there are 55 countries in Africa. We have less than 19 countries represented and in aggregate about 150 people. So I actually sent an email to all the directors, course directors of these online modules, our colleagues, and proposed that we pilot giving it away free in all of Africa. And they all agreed. They said it's a wonderful idea. So we started giving it away free, not even the $10 for the module. And our subscription increased by more than 500% Ooh. in the next four weeks. Yeah, I can imagine. What do you mean give it away free? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is free. Who's paying for it? How does this work? Well, they need to have a computer, and it turns out uh, they're being very creative about it. So sometimes a nonprofit organization will go to a group of doctors, they'll set up the computer, and 15 or 20 doctors in a room will avail of the online module. I see. They've also created print material of our online modules. They've created two versions, one without the answers and one with the answers, so people have been very creative, but it's reaching a fairly substantial segment of our colleagues around the world. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspire to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me to discuss his views on continuing medical education around the world is Professor of Medicine and Faculty Dean for Continuing Medical Education at Harvard Medical School and Senior Consultant in Hepatology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Sanjeev, this is a, it's a wonderful vision, and uh, it's more than a vision. You've actually done a lot of this. But I think everybody knows there's a bit of controversy these days about support for medical education, especially when it involves industry, pharmaceutical companies, device companies. How do you manage to avoid not only the conflict, but the appearance of conflict? It's a wonderful question, Dr. Samuels. We actually at Harvard uh, just last month had an Ackerman symposium that was devoted to this topic on the relationship between academia and industry. I was uh, one of the speakers, and my talk was entitled Harvard Medical School, Department of Continuing Education, Past, Present, and Future. And one of the slides I showed during that talk was to address what is ideal continuing medical education with academic rigor. And I broke it down into sort of the following seven attributes. And the first one is it has to help the learner identify and address knowledge gaps. Secondly, the teaching exercise has to be interactive, engaging, and incorporate elements of adult learning. It has to be evidence-based. The faculty person has to be an outstanding teacher, clinician, or scientist with a robust fund of knowledge. And then very importantly, the potential conflicts have to be declared and resolved. And then the learning translates into not only knowledge acquisition, but knowledge retention, practice improvement, and then the holy grail, enhanced patient outcomes. But these six attributes that I've just listed would not be meaningful if those events were not accessible, affordable, 
and had a really wide reach. You know, I'm a strong believer in the saying that learning is in the domain of the seeker. And our colleagues around the world are thirsting for updated medical information. If we can follow these seven attributes and it can be tuition-based, that's fine. If it can be tuition-based with some industry support, but with full disclosure, transparency, fine. If the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation want to give us millions of dollars so that we can carry out this work, it's fine. The discussion should be on what is ideal CME with academic rigor. So I take it that you don't agree with the harshest of the critics who basically say, by definition, if there is any support from a pharmaceutical company, from any kind of industry, from a device company, no matter how many of these firewalls you put up, by definition, there's a conflict or an apparent conflict, and it's impossible to resolve these. You're in disagreement with that. I am in disagreement with those harsh critics. We actually, when we look at our evaluations, we do seven courses called Current Clinical Issues in Primary Care Medicine around the country with wonderful academic colleagues, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, University of Florida, Northwestern, and UCLA at Anaheim. And we look at thousands of evaluations, literally 30,000 to 40,000 evaluations each year. And we actually ask this question, did you perceive a conflict of interest? Was there appropriate faculty disclosure? And a resounding 97, 98% will say there was no conflict. Yeah, so you'd that be there was per- full disclosure. And you'd be prepared to sort of stand up in front of Senator Grassley's committee and say what you just said to me. I would. In fact, if Because we, we need somebody to do that. Yeah, and in fact, that. if we look at our HMS courses, and only about 30% of them get some industry or foundation support, the other 70% do not, the 70% that do not have the same kind of percentage of 97, 98, 95% of the attendees saying they did not perceive any bias, any commercial influence. Well, I wish we had much longer to talk, Sanjeev, but uh, we'll have you back definitely on the program to get you back to talk more about this because you have a lot of very interesting ideas and maybe sometime we'll get somebody who takes that harsh other view and we can all three of us talk about it together. That would be fun. That would be fun. I want to thank Professor of Medicine and Faculty Dean for Continuing Medical Education at Harvard Medical School and Senior Consultant in Hepatology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Inspired to Act. My pleasure, Dr. Samuels. You've been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels. 